We're going to continue our study on the book of Revelation today. I hope to finish up chapter 7. What I thought would be done in one Sunday has turned out to three Sundays, but sometimes it's good to just drag it out because there's such good teaching. But I want to start our study in Revelation by asking you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Now as we study this book of Revelation together, it's amazing how it has since the beginning. I believe this is sermon number 48 going back to January of 2013. This is the 48th message on the book of Revelation and I would say we've barely even scratched the surface of the wellspring of wisdom not only in this book but in the rest of Scriptures. And I think if you'll find, if you were to go back and listen to all the messages, you'll find that with perhaps the exception of the Song of Solomon, this book has tied into passages from every single other book in the Bible. We've been in Acts before. All of the Old Testament books, including some of the more obscure ones like Esther and Haggai, references or allusions have been made. And perhaps the Song of Solomon is the only one that hasn't been touched. So maybe there's a way to do that before the end. And even in the New Testament, there's been reference made to even the book of Philemon and in, in, in the epistles of John. So it's amazing how the Scriptures tie together. The Bible's not just a book. It's a library of books. It's a library of God's Word. And so I want to turn to the book of Acts this morning. The last thing we talked about um, last Sunday was the purpose of the sealing of the 12,000 witnesses from each tribe. And that purpose is clearly implied in chapter 7 when we see the great Gentile multitude that we're going to talk about later today. But it's laid out specifically in the book of Joel. We talked about Joel chapter 2 and how God made a promise to the people of Israel that the day would come after they had been regathered that He would pour out His Spirit and that the sons and daughters and old men of Israel and young men would dream dreams and visions and that in that time, as a result of these witnesses, whosoever would call upon the Lord shall be saved. And then I touched just briefly on the nature of Old Testament prophecy. Old Testament prophecy is not just the telling of the future. Okay, Prophecy is not so much foretelling. You know, we think of prophecy as foretelling. Just telling the future. Something that... Uh, Someone who reads tarot cards or all of this kind of nonsense is able to do. And a lot of times these charlatans who are in the business of foretelling can describe some quote-unquote future or past event in general terms that can be applied to a number of circumstances. So it's all about interpretation. It's all about generalizations. But in the biblical sense of prophecy, it's not foretelling, it's forthtelling. Sometimes this involves the spelling out in detail of yet future events. Sometimes this involves making reference to historic events in detail and tying them to some future event. Sometimes it is in reference to declaring the thoughts and intents of the heart, something only God can know. So biblical prophecy is forthtelling. And when biblical prophecy forthtells the future, it does so in detail and with specifics. 
There's more than 800 future prophecies in the Scriptures. Of those, at least 300 have already been fulfilled, many involving the details of Christ's life. Specific details proclaimed forth and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And yet there's a great number that are yet to be fulfilled in the last days and the second coming of Christ. If the prophecies related to Christ's first coming were fulfilled specifically and plainly, in plain language, with detail, literally as they were written, surely this would apply to His second coming. The Bible can be trusted. It's full of prophecy. But Old Testament prophecy is not just foretelling of the future. It's foretelling. And it often involves a dual fulfillment. In other words, a prophecy is given at a day and time. And in the context or the immediate context of the giving of that prophecy, there is a fulfillment that would speak to the people of the day in which the prophecy was given or would speak to the people only a few generations separated from the giving of the prophecy. There's a shadow, I would call this a shadow fulfillment. This shadow fulfillment, just like the prophecy itself, points to an ultimate fulfillment. So a lot of times Old Testament prophecy has a shadow fulfillment that's more immediate or partially fulfills what has been foretold. And this, along with the prophecy, would point further to the ultimate fulfillment, which more often than not is in Jesus Christ Himself or in the fulfillment and consummation of all things. And so this is a nature of Old Testament prophecy that we see many times throughout the Scriptures. If you look at the Psalms, David wrote the Psalms in times of his suffering, in times of his rejoicing. David was writing about himself and his experiences. And they were foretelling truths about his day and about Israel in his day. However, they were pointing ultimately to Jesus Christ and the sufferings that were ultimately spelled out at the cross. So there was a shadow fulfillment in David's life. There was an ultimate fulfillment in Christ's life. And I believe we have this here with the ministry of these 144,000 witnesses. The prophet Joel outlines their purpose. And Joel's prophecy is in line with the sixth seal. The first four seals and the fifth and sixth seals. It talks about the sun becoming black and the moon becoming blood when these witnesses are called forth. But yet we come to the book of Acts and we see Peter preaching at Pentecost, quoting these verses by Joel and saying that the people at Pentecost are seeing fulfillment of that. But yet there's not total fulfillment because at Pentecost the sun didn't turn black, the moon didn't turn to blood. There was not pillars of fire and smoke. There was tongues of fire. But Acts at Pentecost and then what follows throughout the book I would say is a shadow fulfillment of what ultimately is going to happen in the tribulation. An example. Let's look at this. Acts chapter 2. Let's start with verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, Pentecost was the Jewish Feast of Weeks. It was to happen 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits. 
Okay? Jesus rose from the dead on the Feast of First Fruits. It says that Jesus walked with His disciples and showed Himself alive by many infallible proofs for 40 days. Then He ascended into heaven. Pentecost takes place 50 days after first fruits. So we know there was a period of time between Jesus' ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit of 10 days where the disciples were waiting at Jerusalem for the promise. 10 days is a long time when you're waiting or anticipating something. Okay, so we're 50 days after the resurrection of Christ. 40 of those days He showed Himself alive, uh, Luke says, in chapter 1 of Acts, by many infallible proofs. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the most demonstrable, one of the most provable incidents in all of human history. Proven not only by the witnesses, eyewitnesses of the day, but proven by the fact that many of these eyewitnesses and those who encountered Christ had their lives changed and then gave their lives for a truth that they claimed to see with their own eyes. Now, a normal person would not give their life for something they knew to be a lie. That's why Osama bin Laden was not leading the terrorists onto the planes to crash into the Twin Towers. That's why Yasser Arafat was never on the front lines causing problems in Israel, or he never strapped a suicide bomb to himself. But the followers of Jesus Christ were on the front lines and willing to give their lives for what they knew to be true. There's an empty tomb in Israel today associated with the resurrection of Christ going back as far as the first and second century. You have the testimony of changed lives of countless believers all over the world throughout history in many languages and cultures. A demonstrable proof. And here in Acts we have an eyewitness account. The day of Pentecost was fully come. They were all, this is the disciples, with one accord in one place. And we see in the context they were in the temple. This was a public place. The disciples were not hiding out in secret. They were in public, unafraid. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. That word there, tongues, means languages. And we'll see from the rest of the context that they weren't speaking gibberish. They were speaking in languages that could be understood by many gathered there. And there was dwelling at Jerusalem Jews... We're talking about Jews here, not Gentiles. Devout men of every nation under heaven. There were three feasts in the Old Testament where Jewish males were all required to come and appear before the Lord at the tabernacle or the temple. One was the um, Feast of the Passover. Ricky, correct me if I'm wrong here. One was the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost and then the Feast of Tabernacles. So here at Pentecost was one of the feasts. Is that correct? One of the feasts where all Jewish males were required to come and appear before the Lord with an offering. When they came, they were told not to come with empty hands, but to give as they were able with a cheerful heart. You see, there's not much difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament principles of giving. 
So at the Feast of Pentecost, Jews who had been dispersed in all these nations in the ancient Near East had made a journey to Jerusalem and were there in Jerusalem at a time when the Holy Spirit came. God's timing is amazing because these things happen when men are gathered from all places so that people from all places can hear and it can go back to all places. It was not insignificant that Jesus Christ was born in Roman days when the Romans had conquered the known world and where Roman highways and Roman infrastructure allowed travel to all places in ways that had never been there before. So the Gospel could easily travel throughout the known world. The historical context was perfect and God knew what He was doing. Now when this was noised abroad, verse 6, the multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language. So was this gibberish like you see with these charlatans on television? Shaking just like the possessed Buddhist and Hindu monks in South Asia? No. Men were hearing the works of God in their own language. So the miracle was not in what was coming out of the mouth of the apostles. The miracle was what was in being heard by people from all nations. There were only twelve apostles. How could they possibly speak in languages at one time from all these nations? No, but men could hear it in their own language. Some people have criticized us as we've traveled throughout the world and we come to a place where there's an opportunity to share the Gospel. But we don't know the language of the people. And some would say, well, you shouldn't open your mouth. You don't know the language. Well, it's better to declare the works of God than to not declare it. And in those situations where I'm unable to take time to learn, why not declare the Word of God in my own language? In places like Nepal or India where we've established roots, by all means should we labor to uh, interact with the people in their own language. But what about those places we're traveling through? Should we keep quiet? We didn't think so in China back in 2012 when we went to Tiananmen Square and people were gathered in there and people everywhere. I opened up my Bible and preached a few words in English from the book of John. Some people would laugh and say, that's foolish. Those people don't understand what you're saying. Well, they probably thought that about Peter and the apostles on Pentecost. But people heard and understood in their own language. God can do that. Never fail to share the Gospel because of a language barrier. You never know how God will use it. It's funny because after we preached there, a young man came up, a Chinese young man, a youth, who had given his life to Christ in some other city. There was a man teaching English to the youth there in a school setting who was a Christian and used that platform to communicate the Gospel and this young man had become a Christian. He understood enough to come and thank us for our witness. And we were able to give him some tracts. He talked about his friends being atheists. We were able to give him some tracts to pass on to them. And he thanked us for that bold witness. So God used it supernaturally just like He did in the day of Pentecost. I'm getting into a whole different sermon here. It's alright. It's all the Bible. It's all God's Word. Verse 7, They were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? In other words, these are people from Galilee. That'd be like saying these are people from West Virginia. These are people from Eastern Kentucky. How do they know this stuff? You know, Galilee was considered backward. 
In verse 8, And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? See, there was the miracle. Not the speaking, but the hearing. Parthians and Medes, Elamites, dwellers in Mesopotamia. So we're talking about areas as far out as modern day Iraq, Iran, the mountains beyond Iran, perhaps Afghanistan. Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, areas west of there, going into Greece, Asia Minor, parts of Eastern Europe, Phrygia and Pamphylia in Egypt, North Africa, and in the parts of Libya about Cyrene, and strangers of Rome, even as far out as Rome, Jews and proselytes. So these were Jewish people dispersed who had come to worship at the Feast of Pentecost, and proselytes, that is, followers of the Jewish religion. Cretes and Arabians from the island of Crete, from as far as Saudi Arabia. We do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. So this was not just gibberish. It was not just nonsensical praise and worship that lost men would not understand. It was the gospel being proclaimed. And we see this with Peter's sermon. These men were filled with the Holy Spirit, not to run around an aisle, not to ask for your money, not to faint like a fainting goat, but to declare the works of God in languages understood by the people. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is linked to boldly proclaiming the gospel. We see this in Acts 4, and that's exactly what was happened here. It's not linked to barking like a dog or laughing like a clown, like some of these charismaniacs would teach. Verse 12, And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, What meaneth this? What does this mean? Others mocking said, These men are full of new wine. In other words, these men are just drunk. They're drunken fools. Now there are some uh, Christians who would say that the word for wine, oinos, in the New Testament is really grape juice. And that Jesus never turned the water to wine. He turned it to grape juice. And they want to try to make a doctrine that's absolutely ridiculous. And usually people that hold this view would say that there's a difference between wine or red wine, that is alcoholic fermented grape juice, and new wine, which is just grape juice. So Jesus turned the water into grape juice. Well, you see, that's really not a miracle if the water is turned to grape juice. Okay, All you'd have to do is squeeze a bunch of grapes and put it in there. When the water was turned to wine, the actual chemical composition of the liquid was changed. That was the miracle. But we can see here from verse 13 that new wine can make you drunk or else this accusation would make no sense. If new wine is just grape juice, then these mockers were leveling an accusation that made no sense. Has anybody in here ever been drunk from drinking... Uh, uh, what's that... Um, brand of grape juice and cranberry. Ocean spray grape juice. Has anybody ever been drunk by that? No. New wine was alcoholic. Jesus turned the water into wine. Okay? Now, I would argue that the Scriptures do not teach that having a drink of wine is a sin. Drunkenness is a sin. There's no debate about that. To be drunk is to sin against God and it's to invite other problems in your life. We need to be careful with alcohol because of our witness in a society where alcohol is linked with drunkenness, but there are Christians in other cultures where 
Alcohol doesn't carry those labels. And I can't judge them for drinking alcohol. In fact, if I travel around the world and I fellowship with Christians or I go into a home, the Bible tells me to eat what is put before me, to drink what is put before me as a witness. And if wine is put before me, I drink it. I don't get drunk. That's a sin. But these men were accused of being drunk. Okay, so new wine can make you drunk. So there goes that argument out the window. I know that's kind of a side note. But Peter, verse 14, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, You men of Judea and all you that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken to my words. These are not drunken, as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, in Joel, the word is afterward in Hebrew. It'll come to pass afterward. Afterward, uh, in terms of the regathering of the Jews earlier in Joel. In Greek, the word afterward is translated last days, which is eschatos. Where do you think we get... What is the word eschatology? The study of what? End times or last days. That's what that word means. Shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out My Spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. The great and notable day of the Lord mentioned here is the coming of Christ. The day of the Lord can refer to an entire period of tribulation. It can prefer, refer to the specific day He returns. The last days can refer to the entire church age or it can refer to uh, the last times or the tribulation. And then look at verse 22. I mean, uh, I'm sorry, verse 21. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved... Verse 22, you men of Israel, hear these words. So who was Peter speaking to? Jews. Referencing a prophecy in Joel. Okay? Peter said, this is what you're seeing here. Fulfillment of that. But then Peter quoted the whole passage and he made reference to wonders in heaven above, the earth, the sun being turned to darkness and the moon into blood. Did that happen on Pentecost? No. What happened? God poured out His Spirit upon Jewish witnesses, right? Part of it. Just like the prophecy of Jesus Christ, it, it says in Isaiah that He was anointed to preach the Gospel to the poor, to proclaim freedom to the captives, so forth and so on. And then it says, and to proclaim the day of the vengeance of our God. When Jesus quoted that passage in the synagogue early on in His ministry, He stopped there where the comma was because he was only fulfilling the first part at that time. The day of the vengeance of our God came later. But what we have here is a reference to this same prophecy and what I call a shadow fulfillment. So the prophecy was fulfilled in a sense at Pentecost and Pentecost in turn with the original prophecy points to an ultimate fulfillment that we see there in the tribulation in Revelation chapter 7. Think about this. What happened at Pentecost? There was Jewish preaching to Jewish witnesses. The Holy Spirit 
came down. He wasn't just poured out. He came down and indwelt the believers. The first church was born. It was a Jewish church. In fact, it tells us at the end of Peter's sermon, at the end of chapter 2, toward the end, the people hear this. These Jews hear this and say, what must we do? Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. That word baptized there is referring to a spiritual baptism. It was prophesied by John and by Jesus Himself that the Spirit would come and baptize by fire. This is not a reference to water baptism. Water baptism is an outward symbol of the inward baptism by fire. Repent and be baptized for the, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, verse 38, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And then it says in verse 30, 41, then they that gladly received the Word were baptized, water baptism, and the same day were added unto them about 3,000 souls. So 3,000 of these Jewish people repented, were baptized by the Holy Spirit inwardly, received the Holy Ghost, and were baptized by water outwardly. 3,000. So God not only poured out His Spirit at Pentecost, it indwelt 3,000 witnesses of Israel. What happens as you continue to read the book? These Jewish witnesses go out and you have what as fruit? The entire nation of Israel? No. These witnesses were rejected and scattered. The fruit was Gentile converts. Read Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius. The house of Cornelius. Peter was called to preach there. God showed that His Spirit was also given to the Gentiles. Paul's missionary journeys. Paul traveled literally to the end of the civilized world in his day. Some say that after the close of Acts, he even preached in Spain and as far as the square in London. And the fruit of that was Gentile converts. So much so that by Acts chapter 17, Paul is in Thessalonica and the people get stirred up at the preaching. The Jews stir it up. And their accusation is these that have turned the world upside down are now come here. So even within Paul's life, it was claimed these Christian preachers have come here. They're the ones that have turned the world upside down. So you had Jewish preaching, Jewish witnesses, a Jewish church that made Gentile converts and went to the end of the earth. A Jewish awakening brought forth Gentile fruit. That is the story of the book of Acts. That is the prophecy of Joel 2. But Acts is not the only fulfillment. That's the shadow fulfillment because the same thing is going to happen again. What happened to start the church age will follow at the end of the church age. What do you have in the tribulation? Jewish witnesses who have the Holy Spirit poured out. Remember when the church is raptured out, the Spirit is taken. He'll no longer indwell as He indwelled the church here. And when the Spirit is taken, evil has no restraint. But God will pour out His Spirit on Jewish witnesses after the manner in which the Holy Spirit came upon people in the Old Testament. And in the tribulation, you'll have Jewish witnesses... Jewish preaching that bears fruit. And the fruit is Gentile converts to the end of the earth. So you see how God's going to do again the same thing He did at Pentecost, but this time it will be the ultimate fulfillment and it will be accompanied by signs in the heavens. 
It will be accompanied by tribulation. The first four, five, five seals. It will be accompanied by the sun turning black and the moon turning into blood. The sixth seal. It's the ultimate fulfillment. And that's how you need to look at Old Testament prophecy. There are other examples of this. This is not just the only example. This is a consistent way in which God reveals Himself. I want to share with you at least three other examples of this. In Isaiah chapter 7 and 8, we have a famous prophecy, Isaiah 7.14, about Messiah. Behold, a virgin will conceive and breathe forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Emmanuel. That is a prophecy ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ when He was born of the Virgin Mary, a supernatural birth conceived by the Holy Spirit. But this was in the context of giving a sign to the wicked king of Judah, King Ahaz, who came off super spiritual in the face of Isaiah the prophet. The southern kingdom of Judah was being threatened by the king of Syria and Pekah, the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. Israel and Judah was being brought to its knees and yet was not calling upon the Lord. So God sent a prophet to the self-righteous king and said, I'm going to deliver you. You don't deserve it. Ask of me a sign and I will prove to you that within just a few years, these two kings who are about to bring you to your knees won't even be sitting on their thrones anymore. These seemingly insurmountable, unconquerable nations will be overthrown. Something that seemed very unlikely. That would have been like a prophet going to the House of Commons in London after Mr. Chamberlain came back from finding peace with Hitler and saying, you know what? Within ten years, Germany is not going to even... hardly the Hitler's government won't even exist. No one would have believed that at the time. So the prophet said to the king, ask of me a sign. The Lord said, ask of me a sign. Whatever it is, and I'm going to prove this is to be true. And then King Ahaz, who was wicked, an idolater, said, I'm not going to ask the Lord. I'm not going to tempt the Lord. Just a self-righteous reply. And then the prophet responds, verse 13, and he said, Hear ye now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but you're going to weary God also? Self-righteousness and superficial spirituality wearies God. Religious... Ritual wearies God to the point that it brings judgment. Therefore, the Lord will give you a sign. You don't want a sign? I'm going to give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Butter and honey shall he eat that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that thou abhorrest shall be forsaken of both her kings." The Lord shall bring upon thee and upon thy people and upon thy father's house days that have not come from the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. Now remember that word Ephraim was often used to refer to all of the northern kingdom. We talked about that last week and why the name Ephraim is not in the list of Revelation 7. So in other words, Ahaz has said before a virgin is going to conceive and bear a son and before he's old enough to know right from wrong, before his age of accountability, these kings that you fear and hate will be removed. They won't be a threat anymore. In history, we see this fulfilled in 722 B.C. when the king of Assyria conquered Syria, conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, and led it away captive. But look in chapter 8. So we have this prophecy that we know is referring to Jesus ultimately, but there's an initial fulfillment of it. 
Chapter 8, Moreover, the Lord said unto me, this is immediately after this encounter with Ahaz, Take thee a great roll and write in it with a man's pen concerning Maher Shalar Hashbaz. And I took unto me faithful witnesses to record. That word Maher Shalar Hashbaz means haste ye, haste ye to the spoil. And then look at verse 3. And I went unto the prophetess, and she conceived and bare a son. Then said the Lord unto me, Call his name Maher Shalar Hashbaz. For before the child shall have knowledge to cry, my father and my mother, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria shall be taken away before the kings of Assyria. And then he goes on to to verse 8, talking about this birth of a son to Isaiah. And he shall pass through Judah, he shall overflow and go over. This is the king of Assyria. He shall reach even unto the neck and the stretching out of his wings and shall fill the breadth of thy land, O Emmanuel. So the word Emmanuel here is a name given to Isaiah's son who would be born shortly thereafter. And before Isaiah's son was old enough to cry to his mother and his father, these kings that were threatening King Ahaz would be overthrown. And so we have initial fulfillment. Marshal Ahashbaz. Was that a supernatural Conception, no. What did Isaiah do? He took a prophetess to be a wife. The prophetess was a virgin. He took her to be a wife. He laid with her. She had a son. You see, Isaiah also had another son. Because in chapter 7, when he is told to go to King Ahaz, it says that he was to take him and his other son, Shir Jashbub, thy son, and go confront the king. And then it tells us later in chapter 8 that him and his children were given as signs to Israel. Obviously, when you read the context, Isaiah at some point had a wife that died. That's the way it seems. And this prophetess, he took to be a wife. She was a virgin. He was an older man. He took her to be a wife and she gave birth to this second son, which was the shadow fulfillment of this prophecy to King Ahaz. And before Marshal Ahashbaz was old enough, to cry and to understand evil from good, the kings threatening Judah were overthrown. And that should have brought the people to faith. It should have brought the king to faith. But unfortunately, it did not. Ultimately, this prophecy was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who was born of a true virgin. Not a virgin that came and laid with a man, but a perpetual virgin up until that day. The conception hat was, was made apart from sexual relations. Now later, Mary married Joseph and had other children. The Catholic Church didn't want you to believe that, but Jesus had brothers and sisters. But up until the birth of Jesus, she had never laid with a man. And then we go on to Matthew, and we see in, the, and in Luke, we see in the birth of Jesus Christ, this prophecy noted in its ultimate fulfillment. So you have an example of a dual fulfillment. Another example involves the ministry of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a shadow fulfillment of an ultimate fulfillment that will happen in the last days with God's witness Elijah. We see this in Revelation 11. Let's see here. Let's get some involvement here. Bob, would you look up Isaiah, I mean, would you look up Isaiah 43 through 5? Ricky, Malachi, verse chapter 3, 1 and 2. Daniel, 
Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Ronnie, Mark 1, 2 through 5. Man, I'm running out. Jim, Matthew 17, 10 through 13. Tony, Matthew 11, 13 and 14. There's a whole lot of Scriptures here, but let's just see what they have to say. Anybody need me to repeat for them? Daniel was 4, 5 through 6. Chapter 4, 5 and 6. Alright, Malachi 3, 1 through 2. I mean, I'm sorry, Isaiah 43 through 5. So we see here a prophecy of a forerunner who would come and prepare for the coming of the Lord through His preaching. Who does that immediately remind you of in the New Testament? John the Baptist. Okay? This is connected with John the Baptist, but it's also connected with another fulfillment. And we're going to see that. It's... The New Testament links this passage in Isaiah with Malachi. Read Malachi 3, 1 and 2. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way of the And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant, whom ye delight in, behold, he shall come, save the Lord of hosts. But who may abide in the day of his coming? Who shall stand and he appear for his life will find strife and like the Lord's So a messenger will be sent before the face of the Lord before His coming. What kind of coming? Verse 2. Who shall be able to stand? Who shall be able to abide? A refiner's fire, a fuller soap. That's talking about the second coming. So there's a messenger connected not only with the first coming, but with the second coming. Then go to Malachi 4, 5, and 6 and we'll see the identity of this messenger. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet So this messenger is identified at the end of chapter 4 as Elijah the prophet before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. We're going to talk more about this in Revelation 11. Those two witnesses, one of which I believe is Elijah the prophet. Notice the ending of the book of Malachi, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. The Old Testament ends with a threat. It ends on a negative note, and then there's 400 years of silence before God speaks again to His people, to Zacharias the prophet. Very interesting. One of the few books in the Bible that ends on a very scary note. I believe the book of Nahum is another. Okay. Mark 1, 2 through 5. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John did baptize in the wilderness, and preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And then went out unto him all the land of Judea, and they of Jerusalem, 
and were all baptized of him in the river of Jordan, confessing their sins. Okay, so Matthew, the gospel author, references both the prophecy in Isaiah and the prophecy in Malachi and applies it to John the Baptist. Is there any question about that? No. John the Baptist, Matthew writes, is a fulfillment of these prophecies. Now it's funny when you read Mark chapter 1 verse 2. Yeah. I mean Mark, I'm sorry. Mark, Mark the Gospel author. I made a mistake, sorry. Mark, Matthew talks about it too. Does anybody in here have a Bible that says in verse 2 as it is written in Isaiah the prophet instead of the prophets? In Mark 1? Anybody? Or does everybody's translation say in Mark 1 verse 2, the prophets? Mark 1 verse 2. Okay. If you have a King James, it'll say prophets. Does anybody have anything else that would say something different? Isaiah. Okay, there's a lot of the modern translations that say in verse 2 of Mark chapter 1 as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Now the problem with that reading is that Mark is not quoting just Isaiah. He's quoting Isaiah and Malachi. What is written in verses 2 and 3 comes from Isaiah 40 and Malachi chapter 3. So John, Mark is quoting the prophets not Isaiah the prophet. If your translation reads Isaiah the prophet, that's a historical error. I don't know why some of these modern translations put that because it's not in the traditional preserved text of the Greek New Testament. That's just an example of where you have to be careful with some of these modern versions because the translation introduces historical errors into the text. What's being quoted here is the prophets, not just Isaiah. Just an interesting side note. But these prophecies are applied to John the Baptist. Okay, Matthew 17, 10 through 13. These are the words of Jesus. Jesus here in these words shows us that Old Testament prophecy has a dual fulfillment. His disciples are taught in the context of Him telling them about His rising again from the dead. They had just come down from the Mount of Transfiguration where they saw Moses and Elijah. The disciples say, well, why are the scribes teaching us that before your kingdom, Elijah must first come? Okay, they knew the, of the reference in Malachi. Jesus said, Elijah will truly come first and restore all things. Restoring all things is a reference to correct preaching. That which had been lost through the deception of Judaism would be restored through the preaching of Elijah. The people would hear the truth. Jesus spoke of it as it will happen. Elijah will come. So verse 11 is the ultimate fulfillment. But then look at verse 12, "...but I say unto you that Elijah is come already, and they knew him not." Now he's making reference to a shadow fulfillment. One in the spirit of Elijah already came, 
And the people didn't recognize him. And it says that the disciples knew he was talking about John the Baptist. So there was a shadow fulfillment in John the Baptist, and then Jesus makes reference to an ultimate fulfillment. And the same thing will result. True preaching that by and large will be rejected. So much so in the last days that with the preaching of Elijah and the other witnesses, when they're killed by Antichrist, it says that the earth will see it undoubtedly through satellite and television technology, and they'll rejoice so much that they'll create a holiday and trade gifts and give gifts one to another because of the death of these witnesses. And their bodies will lay in the streets for three days. And then a voice from heaven will say, get up. And they'll raise up and be transported back to heaven. And then all the earth will fear. And a great earthquake will destroy a part of Jerusalem. So Jesus is making reference to two fulfillments here. Mark chap- uh, Matthew chapter 11, 13 and 14. I think that was you, Tony, right? Okay, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you care or if you receive it, this is Elijah who was to come. In other words, if you receive it, if you understand, this was a shadow fulfillment. So when you take all of these scriptures together, we see that John the Baptist was a shadow fulfillment of another messenger, Elijah, who would come again at the end of time prior to the coming of the Lord to restore preaching to the truth to the Jews. And we will study this more in Revelation 11. I believe the other witness is the other one that appeared with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. It's Moses. And those two witnesses will give testimony and they will preach and prophesy for three and a half years. And this will be in conjunction with the ministry of the 144,000 witnesses. We're not going to get into that today because we can save that for Revelation 11. And then finally, we've got another example of a dual fulfillment. And these are what's called the two olive trees. John the Baptist wasn't the only shadow fulfillment of Elijah in that last day's witness. There were others. And this comes from Zechariah chapter 4. Okay? If you go to Zechariah chapter 4 in the Old Testament... Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zechariah, Haggai, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Haggai, wait a minute, man, I I ought to know this this stuff, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, two Z's there can get you tongue-tied if you're not careful. In Zechariah chapter 4, the prophet is given a vision of a lamp or a candlestick. And on each side of this candlestick are olive trees that are being fed or the oil from the olive trees is meshed in with the lamp. Okay? And the prophet wanted to know who are these olive trees? What are these olive branches in this vision? And it says in verse 14 of chapter 4, these are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Two anointed ones means witnesses. Okay? In the context of the entire book, we see that the two witnesses that stood for God's truth in the days of the post-captivity were Zerubbabel, 
who led the people back from captivity following the decree of King Cyrus, and then Joshua, who was the high priest in that day. And these personages are talked about in Zechariah and Haggai and Malachi. So the shadow fulfillment of this vision was the ministries of Zerubbabel, the political leader of the people that had returned from captivity, and Joshua, the spiritual leader of the people that had returned from captivity. Those were the two anointed ones in the vision. But this was only a shadow fulfillment. Turn to Revelation chapter 11. And again, we'll get more into this. Verse 3, chapter 11, And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. That's 42, 30-day months. That's three and a half years. Verse 4, These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. So that's referring to Zechariah 4. These witnesses are the two candlesticks. In Zechariah, we know that Zerubbabel and Joshua were the immediate fulfillment to the people of that day. But ultimately, this is fulfilled in Revelation 11. You have the political leader of Israel, Moses, the spiritual leader of Israel in the days of idolatry, Elijah, bearing testimony of the truth in the last days. A dual fulfillment. This is the nature of Old Testament prophecy. It's something that distinguishes it from all other religious quote-unquote prophecy. And we see it fulfilled in history. We can trust it. We can believe it. Example after example after example. Any questions about that? Does that make sense after looking at these examples? We see them time and time again throughout Scripture. Isaiah 43-5. So, Pentecost was a shadow fulfillment of Joel 2. The ultimate fulfillment is what we see here in Revelation chapter 7. What did Pentecost and the ministry of Jewish missionaries in the book of Acts produce? A plethora of Gentile churches. A plethora of Gentile converts. Praise God for Jewish preaching in the first century. Because of that, we can know the Lord Christ. Jehovah Elohim, the God of Israel. And Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. Let me wrap up here. Back in Revelation. So now we're back to what we're supposed to be talking about. Revelation chapter 7. What we see, if you look at your outline, we have the calm before the storm, the verse 3 verses, Israel's sealed remnant, verses 4-8, through eight, the overall total was 144,000, and then that was 12,000 from each tribe. We talked about how those listings agree and uh, uh, work with the Old Testament listings. The purpose of the sealing is there in Joel 2, and now we get to the third major part of this chapter, verses 9 through 17, the Gentile multitude. The Gentile multitude. The fruit of the ministry of these witnesses is people. 
It's not buildings. It's not rest homes. It's not conference centers. It's not revival ministries. It's not orphanages. It's not hospitals. It's not adoption agencies. It's people. Converts. After this, in other words, after he had just seen the sealing of the Jews, I beheld and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number of all nations, and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders. Elders, remember, represent the church from chapter 4 and 5. And the four beasts, those cherubim, and fell before the throne on their faces and worshipped God, saying, Amen! Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders, remember the elders are representative of the church, answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? So this elder, who obviously knows the answer, asked two rhetorical questions. There had already been those clothed in white that John had seen in heaven. The elders, representative of the church, that great multitude in chapter 5, praising God in the first person, now has redeemed us out of every tribe, kindred, and nation. So there had already been those in white seen once, which was the church. But now John has seen something different in white. So this is we're distinguishing here between the white-robed elders and what they represent in chapters 4 and 5 and what is seen here. Two questions asked. What are these arrayed in white that is different than what is seen in chapter 4 and 5? And whence came they? And I said unto him, this is John speaking, Sir, thou knowest. In other words, this is a rhetorical question. You know the answer. Then he said unto me, These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes. So in other words, these came out of tribulation. Tribulation saints. They had washed their robes. It wasn't robes given unto them. It was dirty robes that were washed and have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God, and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither shall they thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them, and shall lead them into living fountains of waters. And God shall wipe away all tears, that is the tears of tribulation, from their eyes. A great Gentile multitude, not the church, Tribulation saints who come out of great tribulation. The fruit of Jewish preaching is Gentile converts. And my friends, these Gentile converts will pay for their commitment with their lives. These are the ones referred to when the fifth seal is being discussed in chapter 6. When those martyrs of all ages are asking God, when are you going to avenge us? And God says, rest a while, for there's more that must be added to your number. Those added to that number are this Gentile multitude. But they escape great tribulation and find peace. The fruit of this faithful ministry of Jewish preachers is people. Not just people who commit to God, but people who are willing to pay for their commitment with their lives. 
There's no pseudo-Christians here. There's no fake hypocrites here. These are people who believe, knowing it will cost them their lives, and then willfully give their lives and refuse to receive the mark of the beast. That's real ministry fruit. Real ministry fruit is that which produces not converts, but disciples, who in turn produce disciples. The church of today, lukewarm and wallowing in Laodicea, could learn from this future ministry. Everybody's got their idea of what ministry should be. Or look at my ministry. Look at our church. Look, at we, we, look how much we've grown. We must be doing it right. Those are the words of Rick Warren from Saddleback Church. Well, if you don't like what I'm preaching, you know, the proof is look at how my church has grown. How many of these people that have grown are willing to give their lives for the gospel? No, they follow Rick Warren as if he's God, and when he changes his tune about homosexuality and all these things, they follow right along with him. Same thing with other charlatans like Joyce Meyer and Joel Osteen and others. False prophets. Same thing with the Presbyterian Church USA. The United Methodist Church. False ministries. Lies. May our ministries produce fruit, produce fruit like what John saw here. A great multitude of true believers. Not just converts, but discipled believers. Before I get into these, the specifics here, I want to conclude today with two exhortations from the prophet Jeremiah. And then next week we're going to look at exactly who these, these Gentiles are and who they are not. Okay? There's a lot of people banking on the fact that, well, you know what? I'm going to enjoy my life now. I'm going to have a good time and enjoy what the world has to offer. One day I'll make peace with God. And you know what? If the rapture comes and I'm left behind, I'll know it's true then and then I'll just believe then. It doesn't work that way. These Gentile multitude, this Gentile multitude is not people lounging around here in America playing the game of churchianity. It's not them. We know that because of what is clearly revealed in 2 Thessalonians about the spirit of that day when God will send a delusion to those who have clearly rejected Him. But my friends, there are many in other places, some of the places we labor that have never heard the Gospel or never clearly understood it. And from these far corners of the globe, there will be fruit of true ministry. Let's end today by turning to Jeremiah. There's a lesson for us today in terms of our ministry as the church. Our ministry as individuals whom God has called to proclaim the Gospel. There's a lesson for us today from these Jewish preachers yet to be raised up. Look at Jeremiah chapter 23. 21 through 22. There are many that claim to be prophets sent from God. So it was in the day of Jeremiah. Chapter 23, verses 21 and 22. I have not sent these prophets, yet they ran. I have not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. So God's saying, I didn't send these prophets. But if they had stood in my counsel and had caused my people to hear my words... 
then they should have turned from them from their evil ways and from doing the evil of their doings. In other words, the fruit of a true prophet's preaching is that the people who hear him turn from their wicked ways and repent. God says, if I had sent these prophets, then the people would have repented. But I didn't send them. They're false. You want to know where to find a true prophet? It's one who preaches the gospel without shame, without compromise, and then sees repentance of those that hear. Whether it be one, five, ten, or a thousand, that's the fruit of, true, of a true preaching ministry. Not a big church building, not a huge ministry office, but repentance. Not prosperity, not wealth, not church growth or book deals. Not Joel Osteen, not Rick Warren, but the repentance of people that have turned their back upon God. These men that God used in the great awakenings in American history were not famous men. They were not well-known men. They were preachers of backwoods churches that preached the truth. And the people of the towns and communities where they preached woke up, repented of their sins, and a great revival swept the land. That was the proof that these people were speaking from God. And the dead, dried up theologians in the colleges and the seminaries of the day who turned their nose up at this preaching and claimed to be prophets themselves never knew God. If God had sent them, then their students would have repented and come to Him. The fruit of a true prophet's preaching, of a true witness's preaching, is repentance. So if you claim to speak for God like Joel Osteen does, but you won't touch the topic of repentance, you are a liar and you are a charlatan, and you are a hypocrite, destined for outer darkness, destined for the fires of hell, unless you repent and trust in the true Jesus Christ. If your preaching does not involve calling people to repentance, then you are a liar. You are a clown who speaks half-truths. A true prophet preaches repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what happens? People repent, and they get right with God, and fellowship is restored, whether it be repentance unto life in Jesus Christ or repentance from sin in the church. It results in restoration. And praise God, we've seen that in this body. The fruit that genuine teachers and preachers, and I'm not speaking about myself, are giving the Word here. Praise God. Do you want solid teachers in your life? Do you want bold pastors who will tell you the truth? Do you want prophetic men of God who will stand up with the spirit and the faithfulness of these witnesses? Is that what you want? It's what I want. Man, I'd love for somebody to just stand up today and say something that needs to be said in our political halls, in the news media, and then won't apologize for it. I'm sick and tired of all this lying deceitful, hypocritical, demonic propaganda about Israel and about Gaza. I'm sick of it. Won't somebody just stand up and speak the truth? You know, last week this radio personality who's very crude and talks about lots of crude, wicked stuff, and it's not somebody you should be listening to, he had enough guts on his radio show to speak the truth about Israel. It was laced with quite a, quite a few curse words. And he ended up cursing the person out on the phone, giving that same propaganda, and hung up on him.
But why does it take a man like that to speak the truth? It's funny to me how so many Christians claim to follow the God of Israel, but yet hate and despise the Israel of God. Makes no sense. But do you want somebody to stand up and speak the truth? Do you want people like these witnesses in Revelation 7? Is that what you want? Well, turn to Jeremiah chapter 3. We want it. Why are we not seeing it? Jeremiah chapter 3 says, this is a good definition of repentance here in verses 13 and 14. I'm going to read 13 through 15. Only acknowledge thine iniquity that thou hast transgressed against the Lord thy God and hast scattered thy ways to the strangers under every green tree and you have not obeyed my voice, saith the Lord. And then turn, O backsliding children, unto the Lord. So what does God command Israel to do? Acknowledge your sin and turn from it. If you're ever sharing about repentance to somebody, take them to this passage. It defines repentance. Acknowledging our guilt, that means owning it. Not making excuses for it. How many of us, we want to make something right and we admit something, we make an excuse for it? I've done it many times. I've got to get that little comment in there at the end just to excuse it. That's not a true acknowledgement. Can't we just own it? We've seen an example of true repentance recently. No excuses. It's very humbling to me. Very humbling to me. Acknowledge and turn. It's not enough to acknowledge, but to turn from sin and turn toward God. That's repentance. And if you haven't done that, you're not right with God. That's how you... When you acknowledge and turn, you see that Jesus is your only hope and you receive Him by faith. And until you've done that, no amount of going to church is going to make you right with God. No amount of reading your Bible, no amount of saying the right things and befriending Christians is going to make you right with God. You must acknowledge and turn. That's a decision you make in your heart at a given point in time. And then the Bible commands you when you've made that decision to make it public. How do you make it public? You're baptized in water as an outward symbol of an inward change. If you claim to have put your trust in Christ and you've not been baptized, you're disobedient. That's the first step of obedience to God. It doesn't save you. It doesn't wash away the filth of the flesh. But it's an answer of a good conscience toward God. And if you're not willing to obey Him in something that simple, how will you obey Him in what He's calling you to do? But God calls Israel to repent. And then He says, if you will acknowledge, if you will turn... This is what he says he would do in verse 15. And, in other words, as a result, if you'll do these things, then I will give you pastors according to my heart, which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. So in other words, the proof of of true pastors and leaders is repentance in the people. And the promise of true pastors and leaders is repentance in the people. So God says, you want these things? Turn and acknowledge your sin before me, and then I will send you pastors according to my heart, which will feed you with knowledge and understanding. Why can't we find these today? Because the people of this society are spiraling downward, just like in the days of Judges. There is no acknowledgement, there is no turning, and therefore the land is full of false prophets, just like it was in Jeremiah's day. We want true leaders in the church, we want true politicians that will stand up and speak for God, then the people need to acknowledge their sin and repent. And that will take care of all these clowns and idiots that are in office. 
even the ones at the highest levels. There are no words that describe the people who lead this country today. They're a joke. They're clowns. And that's what we deserve because we're an unrepentant people. We want the politics to be fixed, then we need to repent. The Bible says, I think it's in Proverbs, that wicked men are in leadership because the people are wicked. We have sinned. We must repent. But praise God, even in these dark days, there's coming a revival when many will wake up. We, we won't see it maybe, perhaps, in our day, but it's coming. And what the church began at Pentecost will be completed. What began with faithful Jewish witnesses will be finished by them. There's a harvest coming, the rapture. Praise God, those that are saved are a part of it. But after the harvest, there comes the gleanings. What Ruth went through the fields and was able to gather after the laborers picked them in Boaz's fields. There's still a gleaning yet to come. There's still a great awakening yet to come that will involve true pastors. And we can learn from this future event by looking back at Old Testament history considering our state today. So remember these passages in Jeremiah. They are the key to true pastors and preachers. And that key is repentance. Repentance. And that's what we see here in Revelation 7. Next week, I'm going to talk specifically about this Gentile multitude and how the church relates to the tribulation saints. And then we're going to get into chapter 8. In chapter 8, we have the opening of the seventh seal. The eye of the storm. Then we have a picture of an angel engaged in high priestly ministry. I believe this other angel in chapter 8 is a picture of Christ engaging in His high priestly function. We're going to talk about Christ as a high priest. We're going to talk about um, the trumpet judgments that follow. And you'll see that they take on a character even beyond what we've already seen in the seven seals. So anyway, any questions about any of this? Okay. Praise the Lord.